Amen. You may be seated. And as you're doing that, if you could find your Bible and turn to Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8. And if you do not have a Bible with you this morning, uh, please take a look in the, uh, one of the chairs in front of you and you'll see that there are Bibles underneath those chairs. And you could turn to page 1003 and there you will find Romans chapter 8. I love hiking, not camping, let me be clear, not backpacking, because I love a bed with a mattress in warm, hot water and coffee in the morning. So I love hiking. I love hiking in our valley. This, this last winter, I took to hiking this uh, trail called the Midland Hill Trail. Maybe some of you are familiar with it. Uh, it's over in the BV area. And one of the things that I love about the Midland Hill Trail, and the reason I started hiking this trail, is because it's about a five and a half mile out and back, if you get there right from the Barbara Whipple. And, but what's really great about it is about the last mile or so of that first half, as you're ascending up to the very top, I mean, they call it the summit, but it seems weird weird to call a hill to have a summit, but I like to take credit for the fact that I summited Midland Hill yesterday. <laughs> and what you've got is about, I think it's almost 1,400 feet of elevation in about that last mile. So it really works you. And I've been doing that about every Saturday morning for a number of months now. And, and because of that, I've become really familiar with the trail. I know where there are the easy spots. I know where it's flat and I'm going to be able to catch my breath. I know where there are particularly beautiful views and vistas. And I know that on that back side with those last two switchbacks, like I remember the first time I went up it and I thought that one switchback was I was going to come around and I was going to be at the top and there was just another switchback. That ever happened to you? You're like, oh no, there's more. I thought I had it in my head. I just got it. Right, because what happens when you're getting to the very end of a summit? It's like, oh man, I'm just like, and I know right in every spot. I can tell you the spots where I do this. And then I get back up and there's nothing like, I mean, that last, you come around this little curve and you see BV spread out before you in the entire valley and you've got about another 30, 40 yards. And these last couple Saturdays, like I run those last 30, 40 yards because, you know, like, because I can. And I'm going to get to the summit. And then what do I do at the summit? Like, feeling strong now, feeling strong now. I celebrate because right? I made it again. And now I get to just walk downhill. It's going to be awesome. It's kind of like Romans 1 to 8. We've made our way through this long vista now. And we're coming up. And we're, we're ascending. There's been spots in, in Romans 1 to 8 that have been a little bit easier, right? And, and there's spots that have been a little bit harder, at least for me, I don't know about you, but, and, and Paul has 
taken us through. He's been our guide on this trail of logic. And and now he's coming to the end of this long trail that he started on Romans 1.16. That was our trailhead. And he started bringing us through. And we've had this slow ascent that we've been making all the way to the very end of chapter 8, which is it's kind of like 31 to 39. If Romans 8 is the summit, 31 to 39 is like the summit of the summit. And as Paul kind of comes around the little curve of the last bit of his logic and he sees the summit, what he wants to do is just celebrate. He's looking out at the vista of everything that's come before. All of that trail and all of that logic and argumentation has arrived at this moment so that he can say, what then are we to say to these things, Romans 1 through 8. If God is for us, who is against us? He did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. How will he not also with him grant us everything? And who Who is to bring an accusation against God's elect, against God's chosen ones? God is the one who justifies. And who is the one who condemns? Messiah Jesus is the one who died. But even more, has been raised and also is at the right hand of God and intercedes for us. Who can separate us from the love of Messiah? Can affliction or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword, as it is written, because of you, we are being put to death all day long. We are counted as sheep to be slaughtered. Oh, who indeed? No, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. And I am persuaded that neither death nor life nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor heights, nor depths, nor any other created thing is able to separate us from the love of God that is in Messiah Jesus, our King. Hallelujah, praise Jesus. This massive celebration of the summit of Romans 8. This is the word of God, and you made it. This family, these verses, 31 to 39, (laughs) this is worth fist bumping and chest thumping and high-fiving when you read these verses. As brothers and sisters hearing these truths, our hearts should get pumping and our feet dancing and our voices singing in joy for we have reached the summit of our experience with the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Here at the end of a long and winding trail of logic, we see what has been there all along the path, the whole way. The unstoppable, unconquerable, unassailable, unswerving, unquenchable, inseparable, never-ending, forever love of the Father and the Son. And I love this. This is so encouraging to me this week. You see, I don't know if you know this about me, but I love doctrine. I love theology. I love 
truth. I glory in, in propositions and logical flows of, a, of an author's thought. I take immense delight in intellectual adventures through the word of God. I love unpacking that and I love showing it to you. And I love that as all that has been here in Romans, which is why it's been so fun since October, I love that the culminating word, the summit of Paul's argument, well, is love. And what's amazing is that when we see it here, we see that it has been here all along. The love of the Father and the love of the Son has been behind it all and in it all, all along. Love is what Paul has been on about since the very beginning of Romans And as one author notes, love is the ultimate assurance, even stronger than logic. I need to hear a sentence like that because I love logic. I love argumentation. I love building an argument. But love is even stronger than logic. Love is not an idea to be worked out, but a fact, an experienced fact, something that cannot be denied any more than one can stop breathing. This is what Paul wants us to experience at the summit of his argument. This is what Paul wants us to celebrate, the love of God. And in one sense, it's just reading those verses. Over and over again, as I was quoting them to myself, walking up to the summit of Midland Hill yesterday. Every time I said them, I just got excited. I mean, my heart was, heart rate was already up a bit, but it was up even more every time I would say it out loud. This is why I hope that you'll join me in memorizing Romans 8 so that you can walk around with a little piece of paper that you're pulling out of your pocket when you lose your way in your memorization and you're saying these things out loud that maybe someone on the trail will look at you weird because they came around that switchback and you were hollering out Romans 8, 31 to 39. And maybe they'll ask you, What in the world are you talking about? And you could tell them. So just reading them almost accomplishes what we need to. It's a celebration of who God is. And they're worth pondering further, which is what we're going to do with the rest of our time this morning. But before we do, let's talk to the Father. Blessed Father, I read yesterday a little quote from your servant, J.I. Packer. He said that knowing God is a relationship calculated to thrill a human's heart. (laughs) How good is that, Father? That your love is calculated to thrill our hearts. And so would you Satisfy us this morning with your steadfast love so that we may shout with joy and be glad all our days. By the power of your Holy Spirit, may we know you in such a way today that you, well, that, that you would thrill our hearts. Yes, and very amen in Jesus' name. Paul draws us in with four questions. 
and closes with an explanation in this passage. And as we dive in, I, I just want to I, I say, you know, sometimes when you're on a trail, you need a guide, right? I, I carry my guide in my pocket. It's ca- he's called All Trails. And he tells me where I'm at all the time so that I can find my way home. And sometimes we need a guide like that when we're making our way through the scriptures. John Stott and N.T. Wright in particular have been a very helpful guides to me this week. And you're going to hear their voice echo a bit in mine. Paul's first question in Romans 8, 31 to 2, 32, serves as an entry point into this majestic conclusion of chapters 1 through 8. I, I think he's looking back. I think these things, he's looking back at the entirety of what he's said before. And his first question is, what then are we to say to all of these things that we have seen and heard? I mean, how are we to respond? Well, here's another thought. Here's what we could say by way of another query. If God is for us, Who is against us? I love the way that a question versus a declaration can actually draw us in and cause us to think more deeply. And and this is a rhetorical question, yes? It it means that Paul is, which means that Paul asking is, if God is for us, isn't actually asking if that's true. The if isn't conditional because we've read Romans. We know that God is for us. Paul is begging the question because he wants us to be sure of that reality. And God is for us is about a clear and simple summary statement as one can make for the story of God's rescue through his justifying, adopting, sanctifying work displayed in the good news of the person and work of Jesus Messiah that's been described over the course of the last eight chapters. That's a great summary. The fact that God is for us is abundantly obvious to the most casual observer when you read Romans 1 to 8. Which means the question, who is against us, is just as obviously demanding the answer, nobody. Nobody is against us. Well, I should say that I think that that's obvious. But I'm not sure where you're at this morning. Maybe when you hear Paul ask that question, you would like a shot at answering. Well, pal, I'll tell you who's against us. The unbelieving and increasingly losing their collective minds world is against us. My own indwelling sin that seems to get all kinds of victories in my life recently is against us. There seem to be some pretty strong forces that you've mentioned elsewhere. Principalities and powers ring a bell, Paul. They are arrayed against us. There's this prowling lion called the Satan who seeks people whom he may devour, which sounds an awful lot like being against us. And oh, by the way, how about all the people dying? It appears that death is against us. Is that enough for you, Paul? Now, I I get just how such a response could rise up in any of us. But the way that Paul asks the question itself is how he's trying to help us. Because yes, there are things that come against us, but if God is for us, God, okay, be careful here now because what you're tempted to do is to fall into this trap of disconnecting that word from all of the power that that word represents. 
Are you tracking with me? We, we throw around God so much sometimes that we actually lose track of who we're talking about. We, we just say, you know, God. Instead of in that moment when we say, God, our minds being filled with the creator God of the universe who made the mountains and the valleys and the rivers and the sky and the animals and everything that we see, this living God is the creator of the universe so that when we look in telescopes and see the stars, it's God who put them there and hung them in their places. That God. Okay, do you have that? in your mind now, if that God is for you and if that's true, who is really against you in a way that can defeat you or overwhelm you? I mean, who would dare <laughs> to be against us if that's our God? What would the answer be? Nobody is against us to beat us. Plenty of people against us, but there's nobody against us to beat us. And would you like some evidence for how much he is for us? He did not even spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. How will he not also with him grant us everything? Everything. Oh, Romans 8.32 is one of the most precious verses in the Bible to me. This is what these communion tables are all about. This verse. They are set for a meal that Jesus gave us, a meal symbolic of what Paul just declared is reflecting upon and has asked a question about. This meal reminds us that God did not spare his own son. And this meal is here to stop us at least once a month. Parentheses, someday I hope we do it every Sunday. <laughs> Close parentheses. I haven't said that to the elders yet. So they're like, what are you saying that for? <laughs> it's a reminder to stop us and ponder the magnificence and weight of what God has done. I mean, if, you, if you're a parent here today, can you imagine giving one of your children, or if you have only one child, imagine you have only one child, can you imagine, look around and see, can you imagine giving your child for us? <laughs> Sinners, every one of us. There is no one righteous in this room not one. We are all the sexually immoral, the idolaters, the adulterers, the practicing homosexuals of whichever sort, thieves, greedy, drunkards, addicts, abusive talkers, gossipers, swindlers, and that's just a short list. Imagine giving up one of your children to die for people like us. That is what our father did. And if he did that, if he performed that stunning and shocking act of love, and it should be stunning and shocking to us, if he did that, gave his son, how will he not also with Jesus grant us 
grant us, and the root of that word is grace, how will he not also graciously, freely give us everything? If he's given us Jesus, what is everything else in the world compared to Jesus? And the answer, of course, is he will. (laughs) He will give us everything. Jesus himself said that we would receive a hundred times more than anything we've ever lost for his sake and the sake of the good news in this life. We will receive it presently and in the age to come, eternal life, Mark 10, 29. And Paul has just said in Romans, verse 18 and 30, that we will be glorified with Jesus in a new heavens and a new earth. And so, no, there is nobody arrayed against us in any way that will defeat us or keep us from the fulfillment of all the promises that God has made to us to give us everything, nobody. Oh, please, just a few more amens. Oh, thank you. Thank you. Question two, Romans 8, 33. Who can bring an accusation against God's elect, against his chosen ones? Again, we are drawn in by the rhetorical flourish of Paul's question in place of a mere declaration. And our gut level response may be once again, well, pal, there are quite a few who are bringing an accusation against your chosen ones. How about we start with our own internal voices and consciences? How about that constant inner murmur of self-reproach that won't shut up? Shows me all my shortcomings and sins. Brings a case against me that appears absolutely unassailable. How about the devil? I mean, his very name means slander, and he is revealed by the angel in John's revelation to be the accuser of God's children, Revelation 12, 10. And what about all those enemies in my past who delight in pointing a finger of accusation? They all seem to bring an accusation against me, and it seems to gain ground even though God has said he has chosen me. And once again, family, this this is why Paul asks questions because that's exactly what he wants us to do. He wants us to work through it like that. I think he'd say, good, good. I'm so glad you brought those all up. And you know what? There's even more that you could. But remember, look down now. Okay, where are we? We're at the summit of Romans 8, right? We're up there just, you know, catching some wind. Just looking down at everything that Paul has said. And he points out, remember what I said. They're back on the trail of my logic. Do you remember chapter 2, verses 1 to 16, and how I pointed out that the whole human family faced the judgment of God? Remember how I described. Remember there in chapter 3, verses 19 and following, how I said the whole world is in the dock and is being accused and a case is being brought against them. And that there was no defense to offer in the face of the massive accusations and charges that were brought against. Well, here we are now at the summit and look around. I know you think you see accusers, but you don't. There are now none to be found because God is the one who justifies. He is the one who has declared you right in Jesus, the Messiah, because of your faith in him. You have been justified and declared right Do you have no accusers anymore? 
It's like that scene from The Matrix. Oh, man, it's one of my favorite scenes in like all the movie history where, where Neo, right? Who is Neo? He's the chosen one. And he's standing in that hallway and he can see, you know, everything kind of green and all the stuff is moving down. And those three agents are at the end of the hallway and they like pull out their semi-automatic weapons and they're like... <laughs> and what does Neo do? He holds up his hand and all of the bullets, there's like, you know, 50 bullets. They just stop hanging in the air. And he does this. And they all fall to the ground. You see, you are the chosen one of God. And when all of the accusations that are arrayed against you, all you have to do is put out your hand. Not because of who you are, but because of who Jesus is. And what he has said about you in him. You are the chosen one. And you know what all those accusations do? You just go, and they just fall to the ground. Praise Jesus. So who can bring an accusation against God's chosen ones? Answer? Nobody. Question three, Romans 8, 34. And who is the one who condemns? Well, isn't that an interesting word? You remember where we saw this word first? There is therefore now no condemnation. Chapter 8, verse 1. It's where it all began. Condemnation, a verdict of guilt or censure that is worthy of punishment to make a declaration of disapproval over someone else. Or if you're the one being condemned, to feel vilified, reproved, criticized, denounced, and damned. And once again, there seem to be so many candidates who would gleefully do this. The Bible itself tells us our own hearts condemn us, 1 John chapter 3, verse 20. Our critics condemn us, our detractors, our enemies, all the demons of hell condemn us. And now Paul has come full circle from chapter 8, verse 1, where he declared, therefore there is now no condemnation for those who are in Messiah Jesus. And now in verse 34, he's asking rhetorically, and so therefore declaring something. So, who is the one who condemns? I mean, who would dare? <laughs> who would dare to condemn a Christian, a follower of Jesus, someone trying to grow one step closer to him, a little brother or sister of the king? You think about that? A little brother or sister, what do big brothers do? They protect their siblings, their younger siblings. Who would dare to condemn a child of the father? I, answer? Nobody. But we've got some thinking to do. Just how is it possible that we are free from condemnation? Because the Messiah Jesus died for us and his death was the condemnation for all of our sin. God condemned sin, not us, sin in the flesh by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh as a sin offering. Chapter eight, verse three. And the Messiah has rescued us from any fear of condemnation because he became a curse for us by hanging on a tree, Galatians 3.13. How is it possible that we are free from condemnation? Because even more, Messiah Jesus has been raised and his resurrection is the announcement that sin has been dealt with and the victory has been won and our being made right and a part of his family has been achieved. Amen. 
Just how is it possible that we are free from condemnation? Even more, the Messiah Jesus is at the right hand of God, which is a sign that the work is done. He's sitting at the right hand of God. Victory is his. All of his enemies are firmly planted under his feet. He is ascended and glorified to his rightful place as the king of kings and master of masters. And how is it that we are free from condemnation? Because he's not done yet, even more, that Jesus is interceding for us. This is what we learned last week. He, has, he is a part of the Trinitarian presence of God. This God who is the searcher of our hearts and searches our hearts every nook and cranny and knows the mind of the Spirit who has stepped into and is living our experience. And now this Jesus interceding for us so that everywhere and at all times, perfect and weakness-free prayer in the name of the Father, Son, and Spirit is being offered up on our behalf so that there is no condemnation. For those who are in Messiah Jesus, none praise Jesus. Question four, Romans 8, 35 to 37. Paul just keeps, you know, he's just celebrating. Like I run out of, <laughs> I should have held back some of the passion early on, shouldn't I have just keep. Who can separate us from the love of Messiah, verse 35. And isn't that exactly what has been on display all throughout Romans, and especially in Romans 8, 31 and following? The love of Messiah, the love of God. Has this not been clear? I, I believe it has. And who is the who? <laughs> who is the who in verse 35? Because Paul is about to list not a who, but a what. So who is the who? Well, one candidate as I thought about this this week, could be Satan. If we look forward in the story, we see that the devil throws suffering, tests, and affliction at the saints, seeking to tear at their faith, trust, and hope, Revelation 2. If we look back in the near context, the who is likely the accusers and the condemners. They're trying to separate us from the love of Messiah. And now he proceeds to list physical events brought about by such who's, maybe. Maybe God himself that could cause us such physical events that could cause us to think that we've been separated from the love of Messiah. Because that's what affliction and distress, persecution and famine, and famine, nakedness, danger and sword could do, right? That could cause you to think, Jesus doesn't love me. I mean, can we be honest? Don't these seem like reasonable threats to you believing that Jesus loves you? Hadn't Jesus himself said Think about this. Hadn't Jesus himself said on the Sermon on the Mount, do not worry, saying, what will we eat? What's that? Famine. Or what will we wear? Nakedness. Your heavenly Father knows you need these things and all of these things will be provided for you. And so if famine and nakedness come, it would seem reasonable to think, well, wait a second, you said you would provide those from me so I must be separated from you because I don't have them. Well, look at what Paul does next. Verse 836, he quotes scripture. 
He quotes the Old Testament. He quotes Psalm 44. Why? Why does Paul say in verse 20 of Psalm 44, if you go to Psalm 44, verse 20, you're going to read what you read here in Romans 8, 36. Because of you, God, we are being killed. We are being put to death all day. We are counted as sheep to be slaughtered because of you. Okay, what do we know, family, when we see an Old Testament quotation in the New Testament? We go back, right? It's a bookmark. So we go back and we read all of the context because it's a bookmark so that we can get that whole context because then we can figure out, okay, Paul, why did you quote verse 20 of Psalm 44? What was going on in Psalm 44 that has relevance for what you're saying right now about being separated from the love of Messiah? Well, I'm not going to read all of Psalm 44 to you, but I'm going to give you a concise summary from one commentator who put it down shorter than I could. I'm not very good at being concise. Here's what he said. Psalm 44 begins by celebrating the love of God. Ooh, okay, that makes sense then. For Israel, seen in terms of great victories over national enemies, all looking back, of course, to the Exodus story, leading to the claim, verse 8 of Psalm 44, we have boasted in God continually. (laughs) He loves us. Then it turns to complaint because everything has gone wrong in verses 9 to 16. The enemies are prevailing and mocking and Israel is covered in shame. However, and this is really important, it's not because Israel has done anything wrong. It's not because of their disloyalty. For one time, they haven't turned to idols. They've been faithful to the covenant. And so they're they're wondering, what's up? It is for your sake that we are being killed all day long and counted as sheep for the slaughter. In other words, it's precisely because we're being loyal to you, God, that you have pulled down the wrath of pagan nations on our head. And the psalmist concludes by saying, literally, God, wake up. I mean, that's like, wow. (laughs) Did you just say that to God? Like, you must be sleeping on watch, God, because what up? Wake up and do something for us. So what is Paul doing by bringing us back to the history of our brothers and sisters who have gone before us? He is showing us that this is the way it has always been. That sometimes we are innocent and sometimes these things still happen And they always have. Do you know that at the time that Paul is writing this letter to Romans, John the Baptist had lost his head. Jesus had been crucified for doing nothing wrong. Peter and John and the other apostles had been arrested. A mob had murdered Stephen. The pre-Christian Paul had dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. John's brother James had been killed. And now the Christian Paul had experienced every single trial he's listing here in verse 36. If you want to read the story, go to 2 Corinthians eleven twenty three to 28 for the detailed list of his extensive sufferings. He's not speaking as someone who doesn't know what he's talking about. And what about the people that he's writing to in the house churches of Rome? 
These Christians consist mostly of slaves and ex-slaves living on or beneath the poverty line, often with no surviving relatives, facing opposition on every corner with no prospect for any inheritance, no priesthood or temple to visit, no visible symbol of the divine presence. But is any of this any of the sufferings of our circumstances are being put to death all day long, are being counted as sheep to be slaughtered. Even while faithful is any of this a sign that we have been separated from the love of God. And Paul says, who indeed? No, in these things, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. Okay, you amend that. I have questions. How, how, how is that true? Well, one way would be because God will take all of our suffering and all of our deaths and all of the events of our lives and, and we know, he says, that he will work them all to our ultimate good, to those of us who are God lovers, verse 28. And then God will make us conquerors. No, he says, not conquerors, more than conquerors. Literally, super conquerors or hyper conquerors through Jesus who loves us so very much that he himself suffered and died for us. And I have a question. How can you be more than a conqueror? I mean, once you've conquered something, what's left? How can you be more than a winner? Do that little dance in the end zone? Well, to be a conqueror means you've won the victory over your enemy and they are laying there at your feet, beaten. Thoroughly and completely, right? That's what, that's what it would look like on a battlefield. But now, if we look at the context and remember what Paul has already taught us in Romans verses 26 to 28, what it means that we are more than conquerors isn't that our enemies are merely defeated. Rather, they are made to get up and serve us. <laughs> That's how we get to be more than conquerors. I don't just slay my enemies. They rise up and serve my good so that I am now more than a conqueror. More suffering? Bring it on. Just means I'm even more of a conqueror. That's pretty cool. That's pretty cool. Hard to live out. Let's be honest. It's hard to live out. We don't feel like more than conquerors in our suffering often, which is why this text is here. And if, as if this all weren't enough, Paul gives one final explanation. So here we are at the end a final explanation. To be truly and fully human is to be loved. I think it's why we want to see love conquer all. It's why we love... Okay, I was going to say, it's why we love romantic comedies. And all the men are like, I don't love romantic comedies. And you're lying, because... You make all tough that, you, you know, I just watch them because my wife wants to. And we're all just saps. It's why love songs are so popular. 
We were made for love, which is no surprise because we were made in God's image and the Bible tells us that God is love. Not that God merely loves, God is love, 1 John 4, 8. So wouldn't it make sense that we were made to express, experience, and desire love? It makes sense. And after everything that Paul has seen and everything that Paul has been inspired to write after the long and logical trail that he has taken us on, the summit of his summit (laughs) is a celebration of his conviction of the love of God lavished upon us. That's what he says there. Do you see it? Look in your Bibles. For I am persuaded. Okay, do do you see what that means And do you see what it means for us? It means that Paul has stopped and thought this through. He hasn't arrived willy-nilly at this conclusion. He's taken time. That's what Romans 1 to 8 has been all about. He's made his way through all of the logic and all of the doctrine and all of the theology and all of the stories. He's thought this through so that he could be persuaded. And you know, we're not going to get to a place of the firmness of of Paul and his conviction that he is loved by God without thinking a bit, without reflecting a bit on the scriptures, without having other people in our lives speak truth into our lives so that we're ready to say, you know what, I'm persuaded too. (laughs) I've thought about this. I've looked at it. It Makes sense to me. It's while he can hurl, this is why he can hurl all these questions at it and, and it's just, invincible to all the questions and all the charges because he has thought it through and has arrived at a place where now he rests in the truth like we said at the very beginning that love is the ultimate assurance even stronger than logic it's not an idea to be worked out but a a fact an experienced fact something that cannot be denied any more than one can stop breathing it's why he wants us to experience this at the summit of his argument that he can celebrate and he can say, I am persuaded that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present right now or anything that could come my way, nor any power, nor heights, nor depths. There's just no space, nowhere. There is nothing And just in case you think he's going to leave something out, he just gives you a sentence to cover it all. I'm convinced that there is no other created thing that is able to separate you from the love of God that is in Messiah Jesus, your King. I am persuaded of this. I am convinced of this. I am staking my life on this. There is no force or power arrayed against the son or daughter of the father which will separate us from the love of the father. Love is the last word of Romans 8. Love is the last word of Romans 1 to 8. God's love for you. Look at me. Look at me up here. Everybody look at me. God loves you. God loves you. And if you are here today or you're on that live stream right now and you think that you're the exception to the rule, God has said he loves you and God does not lie. There is no shadow of turning in him. God has been, in case you think this is something new, it's not. 
He's been saying this since the beginning. Deuteronomy 7, 9. Know that Yahweh your God is God, the faithful God, who keeps his covenant of love for a thousand generations for those who love him and keep his commands. Despite all the failures of his children throughout the Old Testament, do you know what one of the most repeated phrases in all of Scripture is? Yahweh is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in love. Worship team, would you come up? Recently, I've been reading in the prophets, in the scriptures, and uh, I came to the story of Hosea. And many of you will be familiar with the story of Hosea. It's, it's this remarkable display that God's love is infinitely stronger than anyone's unfaithfulness to him. Okay, did you hear that? God's love is infinitely stronger than anybody's unfaithfulness to him. So God has Hosea marry a woman who he knows, right? He knows will be unfaithful to him. Hosea commits his love to a woman he knows Listen now, he knows will be unable to love him in the way that he loves her. Despite her terrible and public failures to Hosea as a prostitute, he pursues her with steadfast love and faithfulness. Hosea is a picture. Therefore, God says, Hosea, you are a picture of my love for my people. Hosea is a story about how God loves you no matter how much you love him. That he loved you first, right? This is why we love him, because he first loved us. I've been reading Ed Welch recently in my communion time in the mornings and this little book on fear and shame. And he's talking a lot about God's love. It was so great. Yesterday morning, here's what I read. He's reflecting on Hosea. And he says, Jesus, of course, is Hosea. You are the one that he pursues from heaven to earth all the way into your shame and slavery. This is the story that has more weight than any other story in your life. It is the identity that is deeper than any other Jesus loves you more than you will ever love him. And because his love is not based on your perfect obedience, but grounded in his own self, you can be sure, you can be sure that his love is faithful and eternal. It's not fickle and passing like our love. Is this not what Paul has said? Romans 5, 8, God shows his love for us in that while we were yet sinners, Jesus died. He he died for us. You know, we live in an age when we can't see or touch Jesus. (laughs) That's hard sometimes. (laughs) I I struggle like, what do you mean it's better that you should go away? (laughs) I really want you to come back. So many times I wish I could just look him in the eyes and say, could you just please tell me, just tell me right now, I want to be sure. Like our lives can be filled with so many doubts because we don't get to see him or touch him. 
especially when accusers or condemners come our way and we're prone to listen to them or when questions rise in our minds or when our circumstances threaten to undo us. But you can take hold of this certainty, family. Oh, my brothers and sisters, this is what this table is about. Jesus has come. Jesus has died for those who rejected him. And Jesus loves you forever. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. So that we can sing in Christ alone. My hope is found. He is my hope, my strength, my song. This solid rock, solid ground, firm through the fiercest drought and storm. What heights of love, what depths of peace when fears are stilled and strivings cease. Stop striving. My comforter, my all in all, here in the love of Christ I stand.